From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back, listeners, to The Dairy Show. I am your host, Katie Schmidt. And I am extremely excited to welcome our guest to this week's podcast from South America. We have Robbie Watson joining us. So welcome to the podcast, Robbie. Hello, Katie, and uh, good morning. I feel flattered uh, to have the opportunity to share with you and your audience. Uh, I love uh, World Dairy Expo. I've been going for many, many years and learn a lot, uh, take a lot of ideas to work uh, locally. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to share with you. Well, this is fun for me as well, because this is really one of our first opportunities to embrace the fact that this podcast can be the meeting place of the global dairy industry digitally throughout the year when we're not together in Madison. So this is going to be fascinating for me, and I hope listeners feel the same way. And I want to start by talking a little bit about your background. Uh, You have farms in Peru and Ecuador, so we've got a lot to talk about today. But how did you get to this point in your career that you are managing now three farms in South America? Well, it's, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. I've studied uh, animal husbandry in Peru, uh, but at the time I graduated, I had no money, but my thesis was dairy project. And I, I really wanted, I dreamed of having a dairy but I didn't have the means. So I went and did my MBA and got, landed a job at Yambal, which is a beauty company. It's very much like Mary Kay or Avon in the US. So basically the quality of the products are very high, like Clinique. And I started working with them and then uh, invested in starting my own dairy farm in Peru. We started with 28 heifers that we imported from Ohio. At that time, you had the dairy termination program in the U.S. It seemed that you had too many cattle in in the U.S., and the government tried to uh, squeeze the the herds. And at that same time, uh, in Peru, the government was incenting for people to become farmers. So for me, it was like the planets aligned, and I was able to buy my first 28 heifers. And from then, we started growing uh, the herd. Actually, I bred them. And when they were ready to calve, I changed them uh, for yearlings to a friend that he was already milking because I didn't want the the hassle of milking one cow or three cows. I knew the same headache is one cow or a hundred cows. So basically I wanted to grow the herd and we grew it till we could uh, have 50 uh, springers calving and we started milking. And uh, from from those 28 uh, heifers, today we have about 800 head uh, between big and small. We're currently milking 320 cows, and we have about uh, 60 dry cows at the moment, and the rest are all the different stages of, of growth of heifers. And uh, since we started the farm, we've been going to Dairy Expo and learned a lot and trying to keep uh, at the pace uh, of the world. And we know that the, the small farms are dying. It's grow or die because the cost of producing milk every day gets higher, and you get less money free from the milk. So you need to do other things. And from the beginning, I knew that one edge was genetics. So I tried to use the best bulls available at the time. I can recall Aerostar, Blackstar, Rudolph, and some of the big guys, you know, Dundee, 
you know, those are some of the names that, that come to my mind. So we tried to buy the best semen we could get and use it on a herd. And that gave us a name, and we've been able to sell genetics. We sell some bull calves and also fragrance. But anyways, because I was working with this beauty company uh, and my job was international, I got a chance to travel all over the world. And every trip that I did for the beauty company, I would try to take one or two days to visit dairies or visit farms or somebody related to the industry. So I've had the privilege of visiting at least 1,500 different farms worldwide, you know, and seeing different systems and trying to learn what we can take to make ours work better. And working with Yambal, I was offered to become the general manager first of Chile. So I worked in Chile for a couple of years, and I used to go to the south of Chile, where they have really the best dairies in the country. And then when I landed in Ecuador, I decided to buy a farm because I couldn't travel every weekend to go back home as I wanted because there were not enough airplanes or, or flights. So basically, and also because of the economy, it was expensive. Uh, sometimes I had to stay 15, 20 days in Ecuador before I could go back home. And I decided to buy land and start a dairy, uh, grazing dairy, completely different from what we have in, in Peru and have the cows work for me and not me work for the cows, uh, which is what we have in, in Peru. And, and that's where we are, you know, uh, we, we've been growing today. Uh, our rolling herd average is about 10,500 kilos uh, of milk in Peru. In Ecuador is about 6,500. And uh, producing less milk in Ecuador, we can make more money than in Peru because in Peru we need to buy all the feedstuffs. We hold the silage, the haylage, and also the corn, the soybean, which is imported, uh, most of it. We're using a lot of waste uh, of different crops. We're feeding, like today, we use 10 tons of mandarin a day. But we also feed bananas or pineapple or mangoes or strawberries to the cows. That, that can affect a little bit uh, the digestibility, but it pays off because it's much, much cheaper as a, a raw feedstuff. What's the nutritional value of feeding fruits like that in a dairy cow diet? You have very high sugars and good quality fiber. Actually, we work with a nutritionist from the U.S. with Dr. Robert Corbett They're from Utah, and he checks our rations, and we send uh, feedstuff to be analyzed at CVAS, which is uh, Cumberland Valley Act Services, and we get our analysis, so we balance the ration. Uh, the only thing we need, try to do is to have stable feeding of the cows. Mm -hmm. Right now, for instance, we're using asparagus, where we're using the leftovers or the waste of the asparagus and artichokes, plus the mandarin. And it's the only way to cut our costs and, and make ends meet. Otherwise, we, would, we could not stay uh, with the dairy because the cost of the corn and uh, soybean has gone so much up that it would be impossible to stay alive uh, with the dairy. Yeah, and we were talking, Robbie, before we hit record on this episode about that kind of philosophy of you're not pushing the cows to max out their production because of the feed costs. So what is driving those feed costs in Peru that, that that is the case? Is it the distance? Is it the availability? Are you actually having to import it? Or is it just all of, all of the above? All of the above. 
Well, our, when we started our farm, our farm is in the outskirts of the city. A good friend of mine, who I thank him very much, Raul Rizzo, he used to be a dairy farmer, a very good dairy farmer in Peru, one of the best dairies. And I bought a piece of land just uh, neighboring him. And he told me, Robbie, buy this land in 25 years. The land is going to be worth so much because the city is going to grow. And, you know, farmers live poor and then rich because the money is on the cows, on the machinery, and on the land. And as the land gets better value, you're going to be better off. So instead of going far away from the city, I stayed close to the city. And it worked out beautiful. Actually, the sad part is that we will have to move the dairy very soon because the city has surrounded us and we won't be able to stay for too long. But the good news is that the land is worth much, much more today. We bought at 20 cents of a dollar the square meter, which is like two cents a square foot. And today it's a $200 a square meter, which would be uh, probably $20 a square foot. So uh, basically because of the urbanization. But that means that we have no cropland around the farm. Mm. It's all, uh, today it's concrete. I mean, it's built homes around. We're able to stay because we have a special permit because we do kid tours and we also do some teaching at the farm. And that's uh, helped us to stay there. But eventually we need to move the farm where we can get corn silage or alfalfa or you know better forages right now we hold between 100 and 200 kilometers each truckload of food for the cows what we can source locally the alfalfa comes from 600 kilometers away which is by hand and of course the oil, the, uh, the increase in the cost of oil and transportation has a big big impact but the corn and the and the soybean is imported from the u.s or Argentina, or Brazil, and also Bolivia, the soybean. So we we have the dollar. I mean, our local, local currency is soulless, and we have the exchange rate. Every time there's a devaluation, we get hurt because we have to pay more, and uh, we sell milk in, in the local currency. So we're in the worst world uh, to produce milk with imported goods selling at, at a local price, and that makes us need to be very, very efficient. And... Unfortunately, if we push the cows, uh, I, I normally do an example. When you graze, it's like driving uh, you know, at 50 miles per hour. If you do you know, extra feeding or part-time grazing, then it's like you're driving at 80, kilometers, 80 miles an hour. And if you're doing fully enclosed, like we have in Lima, it's like you're driving at 120 miles per hour. If you have an accident, you're going to die. It's a big crash. When you're grazing, you have an accident, it's not a big deal. But anything that breaks, easy goes and you can't milk the cows or you can't make the milk work or the TMR doesn't work or the tractor doesn't work, you're in deep, deep trouble when you have the cows uh, fully enclosed. So basically, you need a bigger investment. You need a double of each equipment and really good technical service close by challenge. It's not work for activity, profitability, of the cows. Hold on, you you cut out for a little bit there. So you're talking about you need to have like double the equipment and have resources available. I don't know where you went from there. Yes, uh, we need to just in case you have any uh, breakdown uh, mm. because it's it's uh, as you're going so fast with the cows when you're pushing them out so hard, anything that changes 
will hurt the cows and it will hurt your production. If uh, the milk system breaks down, there's no electricity. We do have an energy plant, but you know sometimes uh, things happen that the milk plant uh, won't work or you need to fix something. And if you need to make the cows wait, you're in trouble. Or the tractor doesn't start on time. And, and you know things happen. You can have a flat tire any moment. And if you don't have stress, you're in deep, deep trouble when you and so forth. So what does the infrastructure look like in Peru in terms of access to materials or like the processing side of things? Well, uh, we do work with our farmers uh, and negotiate so that they plant enough corn or alfalfa that we can buy it. And we try to fix the prices, but the market is very informal. So if there's a shortage on the market and the prices go up, normally they will say, I'm sorry, but I sold it and they, they'll even give you back your money. So that, that's a serious problem. Uh, normally we're trying to buy the harvest and have, I, I like to have at least six months of food on the farm. And uh, we try to make silage and have baled hay or alfalfa so that we're not suffering with all these um, sourcing or logistical problems. But uh, of course, the best time to buy uh, the corn silage is uh, February, March, uh, which is the summer, uh, almost the end of the summer. And uh, alfalfa, you can get it for very decent prices starting in December all the way to April. After May, it's very difficult. It becomes very expensive. So if you don't purchase your feedstuffs early, you're in trouble. You know? Now, we're using a lot of uh, waste from crops like the mandarin, the factory works from March to October. So we start receiving 10 tons a day of uh, mandarin. Actually, we receive 30 tons, which is the economical size of the weight, which is a 30 ton truck, which is the most that the road system will allow to carry on the roads. And we feed it for three days, and then we get another truckload. And we also use uh, asparagus. Peru is exporting, uh, it's the first exporter of asparagus in the world and we get all the leftovers and part of the plant of the asparagus that's not uh, consumed by human beings. We're feeding that to the cows and we need to balance our rations. Uh, but we're almost trying to get all of the feedstuffs that we can get, waste or leftovers, uh, like artichoke, asparagus, uh, mangoes, pineapples, uh, strawberries. Right now we're feeding mandarin and uh, we use silage, corn silage, and of course, by soybeans. And uh, we also use brewer's yeast, uh, the leftover from the brewing industry, which is very palatable. Today, for instance, it's impossible to use cotton uh, seed because it's too expensive. Peru doesn't produce any more cotton. We used to be large uh, producers and you could get it like for uh, $7, uh, a sack of 45 kilos. Today, it's like $25, so we, we just can't use it. But what does the processing side of the industry look like in Peru? Is it primarily a, a process to use in the country, or is it an export type of market like we see here in the U.S.? Our milk is consumed 100% in Peru, uh, but Gloria, who's the largest milk processor, they process like... Uh, it's 9 million liters, so it would be like 18 million quarts per day, and they do export evaporated milk. They Actually, they sell in the U.S., and 
in the Arab Emirates and in Europe, in, in many different countries. So yes, part of our milk gets exported through the processor. But we, are, our farm sells to Live, which is the second uh, largest, and all of their product goes to the local market. Okay. And uh, they do uh, sell fresh milk plus uh, fresh cheese and also uh, mozzarella and uh, cream and butter. So the industry is pretty well developed. And I feel like I, I should ask because I don't know the answer to this question. What does the climate look like for you? Obviously you're on a, a different schedule in terms of when summer and winter is compared to what we see here in Wisconsin, but what does the, the overall climate look like year over year? Peru, Peru's coast is a desert. And uh, it's like a greenhouse. So you can manage because it doesn't rain. It hardly ever rains. We get like 16 millimeters of rain a year. I mean, if you add all the rain we get, it's 16 millimeters. It's almost nothing. We get a little drizzle. Uh, so we don't need much shelter. Now, our problem is high humidity. Our temperatures, if we talk in Fahrenheit, which is what you normally use, would be from 72 to probably 100. But you, you'll get 100 for one or two days. Most of the year, you will be between 75 and 85. So it's very mild weather. It's very nice. The cows like the cold. They don't like uh, warm weather. And uh, when we get the heat, like we had it this year for Valentine's Day on the 14th of February, we got 37 centigrade, which is like 110 for two hours. But that knocked us down and we lost four pounds of milk per cow per day. And that takes like 30 years to uh, 30 days to get back. You know, and basically the cows don't really recover. What happens is the new calvings start help, helping you. Also that affects uh, reproduction and the pregnancy rates. Uh, right now our herd is 56, 57% of the cows are pregnant, which for us is a good number. We always want to be above 50%. But in the middle of the summer, we our pregnancy rate was lower than 20%. I mean, the cows that we were uh, breeding, less than 20% were, were getting pregnant. And that's bad for us. We, we have no replacements and that helps. But right now we're back, back to, to normal and we at least expect 50% of the cows uh, being pregnant on every check. So you mentioned that those cows are in an enclosed freestyle facility. Is there, yes. is there a push for heat abatement type programs in the country or on your farm beyond the, the enclosed style of facility? On our farm, yes. Because we've been going to World Dairy Expo and we visited farms, We've actually uh, inquired, investigated, and copied the best practices. We do have fans. We buy from Schaefer in the U.S. We have uh, fans, and we make a tunnel, air tunnel. Actually, the temperature in the freestalls is about 7 centigrade less than it is outside. So the cows are very happy under the shade and with the fans. And we also have printers. We, we got a... Um, it's a, it's a shower system. Actually, it's two systems. One we have in the feed bank where it sprays, and it depends on the temperature. It, the way it's set, uh, if the temperature is at 22 centigrade, which is the, uh, when the cows start 
getting heat stress, it'll start every 10 minutes. If the temperature goes to 23 centigrades, it'll go down to seven. And at 25, it's every minute you're getting a shower. That really keeps the cows cool because it works with the fans too. And then the cows can eat more. And since we use it, we, I mean, before we used the fans and the heat abatement uh, system with the showers, we, if, if we measured the milk the 15th of December, and let's say we were 10,000, at the end of the summer, uh, the 15th of March, we could be 40% down, which was terrible. It was really, really bad. That's when we did nothing. Now, since we've been using the fans and the shower system, we will lose probably eight or nine percent milk production in the summer. So yes, our bill, uh, electricity bill goes up and our water bill goes up, but it really compensates because once we go out of the summer, the, the cows can get back to uh, production much faster and we don't hurt reproduction as much. In the parlor, we have another set of uh, showers. So the cows, when they're going to go in the parlor, they get a shower. It's, it's not going to soak them, but it's going to get them wet. And because we have the fans, before they go in, they can get a shill. Now, as they go out of the parlor, they have like the Spanish shower, which is really soaking them. And we want to make sure every cow gets, you know, like throwing three buckets of water on top of them. And that allows them to go fresh to the feed bank and eat before they lay down and rest. And that also helps for less mastitis. Actually, the numbers we're getting for mastitis and for the cell count is really, really good. I mean, consistently the past uh, six months, we've been under 10,000, which is for me, it's wow. really great. I mean, we used to be around 100,000 uh, somatic cell, and we've been consistently under 10,000. So I'm happy about that. I'm glad you touched on that because that was going to be one of my questions. That's a lot of moisture to put into a barn and on a cow that it seems like mastitis would be an issue, but it's interesting to hear that it's actually helping. Katie, when I started, I made a big, big mistake, and actually I caused uh, some cows to even die with pneumonia because I went to Brazil and saw the system working and copied exactly what they were using without enough knowledge. And I made a huge mistake that was very expensive. And unfortunately it was bad for the cows. I put misters and increased the humidity instead of putting straight water. Right now what we have are showers. We don't put any mist, we put showers. I mean, the cows get the drops of water to get wet not missed. In, in areas like California or Arizona, you can use misters because it's too dry. You have 50, 60% humidity. But Absolutely. in Lima, in the summertime, you can get 95% humidity and the cows can't breathe. So you really need to bring the humidity down and blowing the air helps. Wow. So it's, it's probably very comparable to farm systems that we see in Florida then where the humidity is high and the temperatures are high but I, I would yes yeah okay I wouldn't have thought about the mist versus droplets that's interesting oh yeah it's a huge difference as I tell you one of the big mistakes I've made and it cost me a lot I lost good cows and I suffered for my cows is when I installed the misters and then had to pull them out and throw them away because they were <laughs> killing my cows 
<laughs> I bet. So if you're in the desert, how are you getting water? What does a water access look like? We have a well. Actually, we have two wells. And the quality of, of the water is not very good. It's a challenge. We need to treat it in order to, to make it uh, drinkable by the cows. Uh, like the, the standard for drinking water is about 200 ppms of magnesium. And the maximum allowable is 800. And we get like 3 million. So if we don't treat it, the cows won't drink it and they won't produce any milk. So it, it's, it's cost us to learn and understand. And I mean, we need to move the dairy and that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. because the water is very bad, but it's, it's because we're pulling minerals from the desert. So the, the dairy sits in Lima. How large is Lima, Peru? Or is there a city in the U.S. that we might be able to compare it to size-wise for just uh, basically you know, Lima is the largest city in Peru. It has over 2 million people, 12, 12 million people. Wow. So it's a large, large city. And we're only at 40 kilometers in the outskirts of the city, but the city has outgrown us. So it's basically swallowed us. And we're right now like a park in the middle of the city and with challenges with the authorities that want us to move. And of course, the neighbors. We have, and this is something that a lot of people are going to love. If you go to a farm, there's very few flies. And our fly control system is guinea hens. We have like 200 <laughs> guinea hens loose, and they eat the larvae and the flies. And you can hardly ever see a fly. Even in the middle of the summer, you don't see flies. It's a, it's a, it's a great experience. What's the largest advantage that you see in this system and, and in this location that you're at in Peru? Well, I mean, we stay there because we started 35 years ago and it's very convenient for me. I don't live on the farm, so we, we have to commute. Well, it started years ago as a 35-minute commute. Today, it takes over an hour. So for me, I can go and see the, the cows more often. Once we move outside, it'll take me two or three hours to get to the farm. So basically, it's economics. We, we need to, to buy land outside and start preparing the movement of the farm. And we're getting ready to do that because we know we can't stay too long. Right now, we open the farm as a petting zoo. Uh, we do uh, school tours. And that kind of has the city happy because we're a green park in the middle of the concrete. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the kids get to see that the milk comes out, out of the cow and that the eggs come out of the hen and that the, the wool comes out of the lamb. We, we have you know uh, a little farm which we use it for teaching, and that kind of has helped us to stay there. But uh, I don't see us staying too long because the city is making it more difficult every day, and also to get the feedstuffs. When you build this new facility on a green site and you get to start from scratch, what kind of a facility are you looking to build? I would repeat the same system because you have more control of everything. When you're grazing, you depend on the weather, if it rains, if it's sunny, it has more variability. And uh, because we have a large market just close by, it makes sense. For me, it's grow or die. When, when I did my thesis in university, I wanted, I mean, I could have had 80 cows milking and I could have made a living. When I finished, when I graduated, we needed 150. 
Then we moved to 150 and then to 300. Today, we're at the break-even point with, with 320. So either we grow or die. The margin with the milk every day is lower. And this is worldwide. It doesn't matter where you go in the US, in Europe, uh, you go uh, to any country and you'll find the same issue. The milk prices are going up through the escalator and the costs are going through the elevator. You know, they go so fast and it, it's very hard for us to keep track. If I didn't sell genetics, if I didn't have other income, I could not keep the farm. So we, we would probably go to a 1,000 cow dairy uh, because it basically, I mean, the same driver for the TMR can feed 100 cow or 1,000 cows. It's just sourcing the, the raw materials, you know, the feedstuffs. And in many cases, when you can buy larger quantities, you can get better breaks, breakdowns and better prices. Yeah, that, that economy of scales, absolutely. Yes. And unfortunately, I see the future of those small dairies dying out everywhere because it's almost impossible unless you work outside and you just do it because you love it or you can sell genetics. But every day, it's more difficult. Yeah, I, I think what we see here in the States is a lot of just baseline diversification, whether it's on-farm processing, so they're bottling their own milk, they're making cheese, they're making ice cream, or they're selling genetics, or they are finding a second source of income for their dairy farm beyond just selling milk in a fluid market. People here are finding ways to stay small currently, and I hope that continues to be the case, but it's interesting to watch how it develops, not only here, but also around the world. Yeah, well, we, we have been processing about 2,000 liters of milk per day for over 25 years now. I forgot to mention that. We produce yogurt and fresh cheese and butter and mozzarella, and, and we sell it directly because we get the visitors to the farm oh. and to certain uh, mom and pop stores. We try to go to the big retailers like it would be going into Kmart or you know uh, Walgreens or some of these, and it was impossible to compete with the imported uh, cheese that comes from Australia or New Zealand. Uh, you know, it's it's very difficult, and the chains really uh, push you to the limit. And we were we were putting a lot of money. They pay you like 60 days after, and we need to feed the cows every day. So I pulled out and, and I decided to, you know, at, at one point we were processing almost all our milk. It was about 10,000 liters per day. And I decided to go down to 2,000, which is what we can process. We sell to the finest hotels and restaurants in town and uh, to, to small stores, you know, we have a delivery system. With the pandemic, it worked beautiful because mm. we were doing a lot of delivery, but it's, it, it makes us lose our focus. I mean, our focus is to be a dairy farmer and not on the processing or commercial side of, of the dairy. And uh, you need to focus in order to be successful. So it becomes a challenge. So when you move out of Lima, are you looking to still continue to process or is the growth in farm size your exit plan from on-farm processing? No, uh, we, we intend to keep processing because I don't like to tie my life to a single hope nor my ship to a single anchor. You know, depending on one milk processor, is it can be deadly for a farmer. And unfortunately, I've been hurt in the past. And one day they say, we have too much milk. We can't process your milk. They don't pick it up. 
So uh, we created actually the, the small, uh, I would say it's a, it's a farmstead cheese factory. It's not on the farm, it's outside of the farm, but very close. But we created to have you know, an escape door for, a mi for a milk if the processing plant wouldn't receive it. It's never happened again. We've, we've always been able to process our milk. But like lately, there's been um, transport strikes, like the one that Canada had lately with the truckers. And uh, you can't get food in or the milk out. So if you don't have the capability of uh, processing your milk you know, and, and producing cheese, you're going to lose all that milk or have to feed it back to the cows. We have a very fragile system. <laughs> I think we learned we all do. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a common issue that we see. What is the typical size of a farm in Peru right now? Are you on the larger side of things or is this pretty average? No, I would say I'm mid-size and most of the small farms are trying to grow and have between two and 300 cows, uh, depending on their location. Uh, there's a few 1,000 cows. I know of one that has 3,400 cows that milk and right now. They produce over 100,000 kilos of milk per day. Uh, that's in uh, Arequipa, in the south of uh, Peru. But they do have a very big agricultural operation. They have like 12,000 acres of land and they process uh, fruits for export. And uh, they, they have these beautiful milk operations, but they don't process their milk. They sell all the milk. I would say there's not too many dairies of above 800 cows. Most of them would be around two to 500 cows. And the small ones are unfortunately disappearing. So before we started recording, we were talking that there's some, we'll say breaking news in Peru with new import laws. Do you want to explain to listeners what that, what those new laws are and what it might mean for dairy in your country? As of the 7th of April, uh, the government passed a new ruling where you cannot produce evaporated milk using milk, uh, powdered milk. In Peru, there's a large industry of evaporated milk that it gets exported to many countries, and uh, also it's the largest consumption. And this has, um, I would say, a psychological and a logical aspect. In Peru, very few people drink fresh milk. And that's because since the terrorism, when we had Shiny Path about 35 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, we had bombings all around the cities and we were without electricity. And when you didn't have electricity, you couldn't have refrigerators. So people couldn't hold fresh milk because it would rot. So basically the, the evaporated canned milk uh, grew because you could open a can, mix it with water and drink milk. And also the palate of the people got used to it. So today, probably 95 to 98% of the milk consumption is evaporated milk. And Gloria processes about 9 million liters of milk per day. Part of it is consumed in the country and part of it is exported. So now in order to process their milk, they have to use fresh milk. And that will make them buy all of the milk available because they're not gonna be able to use powdered milk. And this is gonna incent for dairies to grow and to produce more milk because there's gonna be a market for uh, fresh milk, which at the beginning, it was a constraint. 
especially when the powdered milk was lower. Like six months ago, the powdered milk was at $2,300 a ton. Today is about $4,800. So basically, today it's more expensive for the industry to use powdered milk than to use fresh milk because they're paying us 40 cents of a dollar per liter, which it would be like 20 cents for a quart. And uh, at that price for them, today it's cheaper to buy fresh milk than to buy powdered milk. So these change, uh, I think it, it'll, I mean, the law was passed April 7th and it'll be enacted in October. They've given them six months to adapt. So starting in October, I feel that there's going to be a scarcity of milk and we will be able to grow our herds and produce more milk. And that's going to be good for everybody. Do you think it's a challenge that the country's dairy industry is ready to take on? Like, are people going to be able to grow farms fast enough to meet demand? Well, today, the industry absorbs about 50% of the milk produced in the country. The rest is sold informally. People make cheese in their own homes or yogurt, and uh, it's sold locally. So what's going to happen is if the uh, industry starts paying better, all of those people are going to be uh, sourcing the industry, and uh, they're, they're going to have the milk. I mean, not all of the, the farms are ready to grow, but I would say most of them can grow probably 10, 15% in one year. And uh, if, if there's a right incentive, I mean, people can import cows and, and start milking faster too. It's happened before. All right, listeners, we are going to hit pause here on this conversation because the next thing that Robbie and I talk about is farming in Ecuador, and it is very different than farming in Peru. So we're going to save that for our next episode, which will air on June 14th. And hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation so far and learning about what it's like farming in Peru, and that we will see you again in a couple weeks when we cover farming in Ecuador. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.